tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. There's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. I'm looking at the little circly thing on my computer. It was working fine. Ah, the blue there, circle of death, as it's up. called in some circles? <laughs> the, the blue circle of death, yeah. Eichewald, as we say in Skokie. All right. I think if we pray, that will help. I'm convinced that computers are prone to demonic possession. But in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful. Kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created. You shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations. By the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let us go to the big book on the coffee table. And our first reading today is um, uh, from the first letter of St. John, the third chapter, the 11th verse and following. Interesting. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who belonged to the evil one and slaughtered his brother, why did he slaughter him? Because his own works were evil and those of his brother righteous. Interesting. This is always a great question, which I will, of course, do my best to answer. Um, why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable to God and Cain's not acceptable? Because of the nature of the sacrifice. Let's look at the psalm. This is, uh, where did I put the psalm? There's a psalm I put somewhere. Okay, I, I got it here. I got it. Narf. I've got so much stuff up here. Amen. Psalm 50, verse 5 and following. Gather my holy ones together unto me, those that have made covenant with me by sacrifice. This is a specific word in the psalm for sacrifice. It is zabiah, which means blood sacrifice. The general word for sacrifice is korban. But the specific word for a blood sacrifice is zabiah. Let me make sure I've got that right. I'm sure I do. But that's the difference. You can't make covenant with God except by a blood sacrifice. Uh, I just want to make sure that I'm not making this up. And look at the word. I'm sure it's zabiah. 
And if my computer will cooperate, much it's not. But uh, trust me, it's a beyond. It'll pop up eventually. So Cain offered the, the, the produce of the land, lovely sacrifice. He didn't offer blood sacrifice. Cain's intention was not to make a covenant with God. His intention was simply to to enter into a kind of deal with God. We do this all the time. You know, the, the, you see those those letters. It's sometimes fine piled up in the back of church. And, and uh, um, uh, it says things like, uh, make nine copies of this, leave them nine days in nine different churches. And uh, because if you don't, an anvil will fall out of the sky and hit you on the head. But if you do, you'll win the lottery. I mean, I have thrown out thousands of those letters, I think, in my tenure as a priest. And I still have ten fingers and ten toes. Um, it's pure superstition. But the deal is, <laughs> the voice might just said, yeah, for now. Hmm. Okay. Why, why is this not going into what it's supposed to go into? Oh, it's going to be one of those days. This is the best uh, computer it, in the world and always will be, right? No, it's not. Darn it. All right. No, it's, it's, oh, maybe I just have to put the refresh button. We'll try that and see what happens. Nothing. Well, where was I? Yeah, the, the, we want to make a deal with God. You give me and I'll give you. You understand the difference between a contract and a covenant. And I belabor this point frequently. A contract is I give you that you might give me. No, the computer went into, okay, there we go. I give you that you might give me. Whereas a contra, a covenant is I give you myself that you might give me yourself. That, yeah, oh, it's not Zabiyah, it's Zabah. I'm sorry, I'm using the, the Islamic word for kosher meat. Zabah, which is, oh, of course, linguistically related. Sorry about that. Zabah, which is a, a blood sacrifice. Uh, a, 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 a contract is I give you that you might give me. A covenant is I give you myself that you might give me yourself. Big difference. Cain wanted to make a deal with God. Abraham or uh, Abel wanted to enter into a relationship with God. And when I pray, I'll do this and I'll do that. And if you give me this, I'll light this candle and, and you'll give me what I want. God set the stars to, to spinning. He's not uninterested in the light of a candle. Well, you're saying we shouldn't like candles. No, candles are beautiful. They're symbolic of of the soul wanting to stay in prayer. Um, I, I, I just, I, I, I've shared with you the, the beauty of candles and our dear friend of mine, uh, uh, when he was coming back to the faith, uh, lit a candle at the shrine of St. Francis and he understood that he had to go, he had to catch a train, but he wanted to stay at the shrine. He lit a candle and it was symbolic of him staying at the shrine. So the lighting of candles, if you do it right, is a beautiful custom. If somehow you think God owes you because you lit a candle, no, doesn't, God doesn't owe you nothing. So that's the difference. Cain wanted God to owe him. He wanted to make a deal with God. Abel said, I'll give you what's important to me because I want to give you myself. That's why uh, uh, Cain belonged to the evil one. He wanted to use God. Uh, so moving along. Do not be amazed then, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. And then he goes into this definition of love. We know we pass from death to life because we love the brothers. Oh, I love everyone. Yeah, right. 
Okay, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life remaining in him. The way we came to know love was that he laid down his life for us. This is is the definition of love. That, that Jesus defined love on the cross. Greater love hath no one, but he lay down his life for his friends. That that to love is sacrificial. How often have I told you that, that the word agape, which is the word used for love with very rare exception in the New Testament is agape, which means sacrificial love. Jesus defined love on the cross. And he when he said, greater love hath no man, but that he lay down his life, he defines love, and that's exactly what Cain didn't want to do. He didn't want to give his life to God. He wanted to give stuff to God so God would give him stuff. That's exactly what Abel did. He gave his livelihood. I remember a priest, an African priest, who in his youth had been a shepherd on Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, and he talked about how valuable sheep were, you know, the, the shepherd who goes off in search of the one leaving the 99. I thought that's kind of implausible. He said, Oh no, sheep are very valuable. And Abel gave something that was of essential value to himself instead of just, you know, the extra. So I think this is a very important passage of scripture that, that, um, if someone who has worldly means, sees a brother in need and refuses him compassion. How can the love of God remain in him? Children, let us love not in word or speech, but in deed or true, in truth. In other words, he's saying love isn't just a positive attitude. Love is something that we do. You know, we Americans are such romantics. I, f- I don't feel love for you anymore, so we're divorcing. That's, that's nuts. Love isn't something you feel. Occasionally, you have a feeling that's the result of love. Love isn't a feeling. Love is something that you do. And so often, love is something that you do when you don't feel it. I don't feel like getting up when it's still dark, putting my feet on the cold floor, and going to work to make money to bring home the bacon for my family. I don't feel like it. I do it. You see, love is not what you feel. Love is what you do. Children, let us love not in word or speech, but in deed or in truth. Don't kid yourself. You're not being asked to have good feelings about people. You're being asked to do good things for people, the things that God is, the good works, as St. Paul says elsewhere, that that he has prepared for us that we might walk in them. So um, uh, this is how we shall know we belong to the truth and reassure our hearts before him in whatever our hearts condemn. For God is greater than our hearts. <laughs> If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence in God. Well, isn't that all about the heart? No, he's saying that there's something greater uh, than the heart, and that's God and his law. I may feel that this is right. Who cares what I feel? God has said. You know, that, that, that's, that's one of the first questions asked of humanity. Uh, um, the devil asks Eve, hath God said? that you can't eat the fruit of the trees of the garden? She said, oh, no. Hath God said? Hath God said? So God is greater than our hearts. And when we form our hearts and our consciences in the word of God, well, there you go. We're doing fine. So let us move on to the gospel, which I think is really wonderful. John, the first chapter, the 45th verse and following. Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. 
Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we've found the one about whom Jesus... You know what it doesn't mention here? It doesn't mention a fig tree. It doesn't say, Philip found Nathanael sitting under a fig tree. That's always the way it's portrayed in the in the uh, the, the series. Uh, uh, what's the series called that's so popular? The Chosen, yes. <laughs> the Chosen. <laughs> oh, my mind. My, the cheese just keeps slipping off the cracker here. But yeah, The Chosen. You see Philip sitting under, or Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree. The Bible doesn't say he was sitting under a fig tree. It doesn't say it. We found the one about whom Moses wrote in the law. And Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth, at the time of Jesus, was a tiny town. It was a town that had been repopulated, apparently. Uh, and I, I mentioned this. I take this from Father Bargle Pixner, a scholar in the, in the Holy Land. Who, well, he was. He is with the Lord, we hope. Uh, but he mentioned that there were a couple towns to which the family of David returned when they decided to come back from exile in the century or so before Christ. Um, one of them was Kokoba, the Norseman star, uh, and that was east of the Jordan. And then west of the Jordan, there was Nazareth, which means a, a, the little shoot, as in a shoot will rise up from Jesse. So they came, and just a small town of a few hundred people, but they were threadbare aristocrats. They had their own little synagogue, and they were, they were gonna when the when when the Messiah declared himself, they were gonna be. They were gonna be in. So, well, what good can, can any good come from Nazareth? It's just you know, nowhere from nowhere. Well, uh, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, "Here's a true child of Israel. There's no, there's no duplicity in him." <laughs> Nathaniel said, "How do you know me?" Jesus answered and said, "Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree." That seems to imply that that uh, Philip called him when he was under the fig tree. There is a story told in the Eastern Church which explains things a little better, I think. Uh, um, when when he, he, Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel, he completely overreacts. He says, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. What's so big about this Jesus seeing him under a fig tree? If I was Nathaniel and I've been sitting under a fig tree, I'd, oh, Jesus must have walked by, didn't notice him, and he saw me under the fig tree. But remember, the fig tree is not mentioned in this passage. The story in the Eastern Church is that Nathaniel was one of the children of Bethlehem who was going to be slaughtered by Herod. And his family hid him under a fig tree. So Jesus says, he, the word in Greek is onta, which means being. Uh, you can translate, I would translate it this way. I saw you when you were under the fig tree. <laughs> that, was, that was before Philip uh, called you. So, I think that explains, uh, you know, it may be true, it may not be true. It's an old, old story, uh, and I think it's a very beautiful story. There's no biblical evidence for it. Yeah, there's the salt shaker. Take it with a grain of salt. But it certainly would explain Nathaniel's overreaction to Jesus saying, I saw you under the fig tree. Oh, you saw me under the fig tree? Oh, I didn't notice. No, he says, you're, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Because Jesus is saying, when you were a baby... I knew you. That's that's to me. That's a powerful story. So I, I I love that story. So thought I'd share it with you. Um. Again, take it with a grain of salt, as the salt shaker indicated. 
but uh, I think it still is is a very very lovely lovely story that uh, uh, explains his overreaction. Uh, let me see. Is there anything else I want to say about this? Uh, Bethsaida, very interesting. Bethsaida was a town at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, a fishing village, which is still, they're not convinced, they're not all sources are convinced they found it, but they seem to have found Bethsaida. Um, it's a, a bit in from the, the, the lake, the, 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 the shore of the lake has changed, but it was pretty clearly a fishing village. And uh, uh, apparently when he married, when Peter married, he moved to, to uh, uh, Capernaum, uh, there's his house in Capernaum, which is an amazing thing to see. And um, uh, interestingly, Bethsaida is mentioned uh, only very briefly in the, in the New Testament. But Jesus talks about Chorazin uh, uh, and Bethsaida, where his great works were done. And uh, they're hardly mentioned in the scripture. We have, as St. John tells us, just bits and pieces, little little hints of what Jesus did, because as John tells us, all the books of the world couldn't hold what Jesus said and did. But our tabernacles do. All right, well let's we're gonna we're gonna take a break and we'll come back. Uh, the phones are open at 9149 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Today, we'd like to thank Stephen, who is listening in Illinois, for donating his 2018 Hyundai Tucson. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. It's a Trying to reason with my computer again. Oh, well. All right, let's go to letters. I'll manage to muddle through even though my computer is not not, not being nice to me. All right, let's see. Did I? Do what is it one? doing? Wait, just real slow and not doing the whole shtick. You know, I'll get part of a letter or something. All right. I, I did that one. All right. Let me see here. Okay. I got someone, and I can't find the letter, <laughs> not that it matters, um, that, that, who asked, quoting a psalm, uh, I think Psalm 25, that remember your tender mercies, O Lord, and your loving kindness. Why would the psalmist ask God to remember? Because God can't forget. Well, okay, that's Psalm 25, verse 6. But then we read in... in uh, uh, the book of Micah, very interesting. Uh, this is uh, Micah 7.19. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. I've heard that quoted as the sea of his forgetfulness, but that's not in the text. But he'll cast all our, our sins into the depths of the sea. Uh, but then again, in Psalm 51, we read, my sin is always before me. Um, that's kind of interesting. My sin is always before me. How can we remember something that God forgets? That's the thing about God. He can do as he pleases with this. And, you know, God only has human language with which to speak to us. And 
the Psalms, I, I talked about the Psalms the other day being the gymnasium of the soul, that, that that's, they're about our weaknesses and failures as much as they are about God's goodness. But I think God, we have to understand that God can only speak to us in our own language. And so there are things that are very, very human in the Bible. And I think we have to accept that, that, that the Bible is a, is not a book that tells us simply about God, but tells us about our relationship over the course of a couple thousand years to God. You know, I've heard people say, well, <laughs> the, the patriarchs had multiple wives. Why can't we? Look at the scriptures closely. It didn't work out so well for them. They're still fighting it out in the Middle East between the descendants of Hagar and the descendants of Sarah. Uh, the, the dispute between Arabs and Jews uh, goes back. One can trace it biblically to Abraham. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean we do it. Another another great one. One of the one of the judges. Uh, uh, makes a rash oath to sacrifice the first person coming out of his house, and it's his daughter. And he allows his daughter to mourn her virginity, this, the text says, um, uh, that she never had the chance to marry and have children. Uh, it doesn't condemn virginity, certainly, but um, this girl was given a year to, to, to live, and then he sacrificed her. The Bible wants us to sacrifice children. No, he'd made a rash oath. That's the point of it. Don't make oaths. And as Abraham Lincoln said, a bad promise is better broken than kept. So um, I think we have to look at the scripture that way. And when we read something about remember, O Lord, um, it isn't about God forgetting or remembering. It's us speaking to God in a language that we understand. So I think I think that's a an important thing uh, to understand. Okay. Now, all right, let me get to another letter here. All right, um, this is from uh, Jane about Mary and the Gospel. Could you please help me understand Mary and the Gospel of John? Mary of the chapters 11 and 12 is called the sister of Martha and Lazarus of Bethany. Do you think she and Mary Magdalene at the cross and the resurrection are one and the same? No, I don't. Because the Mary Magdalene of whom we speak was called Mary of Migdala. And Migdala means the tower or lighthouse. And it was on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, on the coast of that lake. And um, there's been some recent really good excavation there. And Mary was Mary of Bethany. Now, the Jews at the time of Christ used the name Mary even more than the Irish did in the 50s. You know, in Ireland, you got Mary, Mary Francis, Mary Margaret, Mary, everybody's Mary. Well, it was that common in, if not more common, in the Holy Land at the time of Christ. So you have a lot of Marys at the cross. Let me just, if my computer will allow me to do it, um, let me let me look that up. The, the, you'd be astonished at the number of Marys uh, at the foot of the cross. Okay. 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 Click, click. I got it. I got it. Okay. All right. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and Mary of Clopas. They're called the three Marys. Uh, uh, Mary of uh, Bethany wasn't at the foot of the cross, apparently. But yeah, the few people who stood close to the foot, uh, uh, well, let's see. The Gospels refer to several women named Mary at various points of Christian history. 
Some of these women have been identified with one another. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, mother Mary of Jacob, mother of, uh, who is called James the Less, or the brother of the Lord, appears to have been Jesus' cousin in this text. That's Matthew 27, verse 56. Then you've got Mary, the wife of Cleophas, who may be the same as Mary, the mother of, of, of Jacob. Then you've got Mary of Bethany, who isn't at the crucifixion. So you've got all these Marys. That's, that's the problem. Uh, just think of the Irish, Jane, and as we all like to do, <laughs> God bless them. All right, let's see here. All right. Now, this is when I... I don't know where to go with this, um, but I'll I'll jump into this pool. This is from Gina. Uh, recently, a Mississippi House candidate was charged with destroying a satanic display at the Iowa Capitol building. Was this morally permissible to do, or was it using evil means to do a good end? Um, I would probably come down in favor of not having destroyed it. I mean, uh, the effect of that was to, to broadcast it all over uh, the nation. In other words, it wasn't just seen in Mississippi. It was seen all over the nation. You know, the early Christians never, I can't think of the early Christians ever destroying a pagan image. Um, now, later Christians did. But in the first centuries, they didn't have the power to do it. And I don't know that they, they did it. They encouraged other people to do it. I think that that's, that's uh, um, um, a point. That St. Paul, we read in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, his preaching was so so dynamic that he encouraged people. Let's see if I find that passage. He encouraged people... Um, uh, uh, destruction of the amulets to destroy their their satanic things. Um, okay, let's see here. Acts nineteen, the magicians of Ephesus. Uh, let's see here. Acts nineteen. Uh, let's see. Acts nineteen nineteen. Let me pull this up. All right. Um, uh, the the we see that Saint Paul. Uh, um, uh, I think it's in, in 19, uh, St. Paul encouraged them to confess their sins and uh, to, to destroy their, their amulets. And they did. He didn't destroy them. They did. Uh, I think that's, that's a little different, that, that we live in such a way as, as to, to encourage people to live virtuous lives. Um, God did, ex we read, this is, this is Paul in Ephesus chapter 19, verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. And, um, uh, they, they, they rioted. Let's see here, because he was so endangering the business of making idols for people to worship. Uh, let's see here. Where's, I can't find the destruction of the amulets, but they did. They, they burn in this section, they burn their, their charms, their talismans, their amulets, not because the Christians forced them to, but because the power of Paul working miracles in the name of Jesus transformed them. So I think that, you know, we can, we can, I, I can't judge this fellow. You know, this might have been from the Lord. But on the other hand, 
I think that, that as an automatic response, vandalism of those images uh, really doesn't work. Whereas leading holy lives in such a way that people are drawn to the faith, that does work. So uh, there's a difference therein. So I, I just thought you might be interested from that perspective. Well, during the break, I'll find that exact passage about where they... Oh, by the way, there's a lot of lines open at 888 Let's see if I, I can find another letter that I can comment reasonably on. Okay. This is an interesting line from someone who's anonymous. Every man who's studying to be a priest needs to complete the following assignment. He needs to sit in a pew during Mass and try to entertain and soothe the baby, a toddler, and a preschooler. All at the same time, alone, with no one else to help him. Don't you think this would be an excellent assignment to add to seminary training? Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I remember um, a deacon, wonderful, John Green. Uh, he was preaching one Sunday, and I was sitting in the in the priest chair listening to a very good sermon. He's a good preacher. And uh, um, one of his kids just wanted to be up there with Daddy. And he's making a terrible, terrible racket and poor john poor deacon john was was uh uh vex i think that kid is going to seminary but uh, moving along poor john was just a wreck about it and i noticed being a listener it didn't bother me at all i could hear what john was saying so a kid's crying i think that the parents and the preacher are the ones who worry about it. No one else is terribly concerned about it. I remember a lady in our choir. She'd be up in the choir loft, and, you know, I'd be down there preaching or something going on, and she would be at the edge of the, the rail of the choir loft, and every time some kid would cry, she'd go, shh. The kid would make a noise, shh. She kept hushing these. I didn't notice the kids crying. I noticed <laughs> this choir member hushing. So uh, she didn't, she wasn't with us long, but moving along here, I, I, I think that uh, every time you hear a kid cry in church, uh, that's the future. Be grateful. Uh, oh gosh. I, I, I'm going to share this. Uh, I was talking to a fellow priest uh, the other night and uh, he told a story of a, a priest he knew who was uh, offering a Sunday mass in a huge church in Germany. And uh, uh, there were, he had two altar servers and the congregation in this large medieval church was a congregation of two. And at some point, I think before mass started, they announced, they changed their mind. They were going home to watch a soccer game. And the two mass servers said, oh, the soccer game, they took off their, their vestments and went home also to watch the soccer game. So this priest was left alone in uh, in this big church in Germany uh, to offer Sunday Mass. Um, you know, I think that we really need uh, to look uh, at where the, the faith is succeeding and where it's failing. You know, I, I had the wonderful experience of, of going down to Red Sea Radio, uh, I think probably a year ago, and just seeing the dynamic growth of the church in Texas. Uh, and then, of course, you go other places and it ain't happening. Um, I think we need to look at where there's success. And a, a crying baby, to me, is a sign of success in, in the congregation of church. So... Yeah, I don't know that, that uh, people studying to be priests need to uh, uh, 
and learn how to cope with children in the pew. But on the other hand, uh, I think that when we have fussy children in the pew, um, we should rejoice. That's just a thought. Okay, I think we could probably go to a break. We'll come back with a word of the day. And um, uh, the phones are very open at 888-914-9149-888-914-9149. The tears I shed were tears of joy. Network sponsor Time Bank can make remote account opening easy. No matter where you are in the country, they offer mobile and online banking and knowledgeable bankers that answer the phone. More information at time.bank. That's time.bank. Member FDIC. Amen. Well, let us go now to the word of the day. All right, this is kind of an odd word of the day. It's and. In the line, do not be amazed then, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. The word is actually and, and I think it's not in all the texts. Uh, they translate it as then, but it's literally uh, because uh, do not, you know, why did why did Cain slaughter evil? Because his works were evil, those of his brother righteous do not be, and do not be amazed, brothers and sisters. The world hates you. Why? Why is that in there? We know that we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. Um, this is kind of odd that that this verse is stuck in there. Why is it? Why is Saint John telling us the world hates us, uh, and we shouldn't be amazed then, because we define love differently than the world does? I think that's what's going on. That that Cain did not love God. He wanted to use God. He might have felt he loved God. He felt he was being devout. But Abel gave of his very substance. He gave a blood sacrifice. We define love differently. And if we define love the way the world defines love, the world has no problem with us. But we say that love is not what the world says love is. Love is sacrificial. Love is the laying down of life. It isn't a feeling. And so many of the controversies in which we are involved in right now are about the definition of love. The world says love is a feeling that I like. We say, no, love is not a feeling. Love is what we do uh, for those people whom the Lord has given us in our life, uh, for whom we care. It's a totally different definition of the most important thing going that, again, I'm so sorry, I say this just about every show, love is to will the good of another, to do what is good for another. And the world says, no, love is the way I feel when I'm with a certain person who floats my boat, as the saying goes, until that boat sinks, then I love someone else. We are diametrically opposed to to the world's definition of love. And just while I've got you on the topic, the word world here is cosmos. We get the word cosmos from it, but cosmos, it's oddly enough related to the word for cosmetic. It isn't just the planet Earth, but it is the, 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 
the decorated world. Uh, uh, that's how, how the word cosmos is related to cosmetic, something that is adorned, something that's built up, the world order. So the world order hates you because you define love differently. You define love by the cross of Christ. And as long as you do that, they're going to hate you. So just be forewarned. All right, let's go to phones. You know, I'd be lost without a telephone. Hey, don't go away. I want to talk to you. Ezekiel, what can I do for you? Hey, Father Simon, long-time listener, first-time caller. Well, um, welcome aboard, then. Thank you. I, I the calls. Have, uh, a, <laughs> so I sponsored uh, a guy that came into the Catholic Church last Easter, and he had yeah. just got married. He just got married before the the RCI classes started, and Ooh. it wasn't. It was not in the Catholic Church, and no, the the his wife is a Protestant. Okay, yes. and and my question is: Is he allowed to receive communion? You know, I, I I'm, you know, I, I, as I always say, I wish I was a better canon lawyer and moral theologian, but he was a Protestant married to a Protestant before he became a Catholic, right? Yes. We would judge that marriage to have been valid. So I would say, yes, he can. He was legitimately and validly married as a Protestant, you see, now, now, this was his first wife, and she was his first husband. Yes. Yeah, we would we would judge that marriage to have been a valid and sacramental marriage, though, though most of the Protestants I know wouldn't talk about marriage as being sacramental, but we would respect the validity of that marriage between two baptized people, uh, because they were free to be married. Therefore, uh, he is still married and legitimately married and can go to Holy Communion. Yes. Even even though now, it's not in a Catholic church. No, no, we, we believe that, that that by the sacrament of baptism, that, that you know, uh, in the Western Church, we talk about the bride and groom being the ministers of the sacrament. So they were baptized Christians who were the ministers of the sacrament of marriage, a valid sacrament. Yeah. Now, I, if there's anybody who's a better theologian than me, and it's easy to be listening, or a better moral theologian, uh, please uh, let me know if I'm mistaken. But that marriage was a valid marriage, therefore... Uh, his continuing in that marriage is not sinful, it's sacramental. Now, we would encourage him to renew his vows in the Catholic Church if he could, but I don't believe it, it's it's necessary to do that. And I, I'm certainly sure that the priest who led him through this would have examined his situation uh, thoroughly beforehand. So yes, he, I, he as far as I know, he is free to receive Holy Communion in the Catholic Church. Does that right, answer really? your question? Yes, well, I don't know if it's brilliant. Much. I hope it's true. I'm going to have to do some research on that. But uh, you know, and if I'm wrong, I will repeat it loudly. But I, I'm 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 pretty sure that that because his marriage was a valid marriage, he is still married and uh, the faithful husband of one wife, and um, thus able to receive holy communion uh, validly. Hope that helps, Ezekiel. God bless and thanks for listening. And I'm glad you're God among bless. the callers now. Don't hesitate to call. God bless. Thank you, Father. You're welcome. Let's go to Steve from Westchester, Illinois, a town I know well. I used to roam about in <laughs> yes. Westchester back when it was a swamp. Always good to talk with you, Father. <laughs> yes, I remember you've mentioned that before. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. There was a weed there that a... if you bumped up against it, you itched for hours. But going on, go... ah, <laughs> what can I do for you, Steve? Well, I'm going to toss you a little bit of a softball. Um, 
When uh, in today's uh, gospel reading, the last passage, I know you mentioned it earlier, but you didn't uh, talk about this specific question of mine. <sighs> whenever I hear the words of Jesus saying, amen, amen, it's like, okay, snap your fingers, wake up. I got something really important you need to pay attention to. When Jesus says, amen, amen to Nathaniel, I say to you, you will see the sky open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What were yes. you talking about? What period? He, like, what do you think he was talking about to Nathaniel at that moment? Well, he starts out by saying, this is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Uh, then he goes on to talk about, you'll see the sky opened. Remember who, who Israel was in the Bible? Jacob. Have you ever mm -hmm. heard of Jacob's ladder? Yes. Jacob fell asleep and, and I was at Bethel and he had a dream. He saw the angels of God ascending and descending on a kind of ladder. But Jesus goes a little farther. Nathaniel says, truly, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus says, you will see the sky open and the angels of God descending, ascending and descending on the son of man. The word in the text, if I recall it right, is epi, which means upon. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. I always used to read this and think uh, uh, that that uh, uh, the angels were coming down over Jesus. No, it's upon. Jesus calls himself Jacob's ladder. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. That that he is the vehicle between heaven and earth. He is the the means of getting up and down from heaven to earth. The angels are ascending and descending upon him. Not oh, upon the ladder, so, but upon him. So do you think that it was not a specific, like, a vision that uh, Nathaniel would be seeing of, like, a very literal angels coming up and down from heaven on the physical Jesus? Do you think it was more of a, like, av as you proceed on the way, as my, uh, you know, one of my 12, you will see things. Um, yeah, I think so. But remember, Nathaniel would have been at the ascension. He would have seen Jesus ascend into heaven. He would have seen Jesus being that vehicle. Okay. That, 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 yeah, that, that, that you're going to see more than you're an Israelite in whom there's new guile. You're going to see more than Israel saw. You're going to see how I'm the vehicle between heaven and earth. And he would have seen that very graphically in the Ascension, I suspect. Oh, uh, okay, okay. That, yeah, it, it, caught my, it caught my 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 eyes because I thought, you know, was he talking about something that you know it doesn't? You know, I, obviously, I knew it was important because of the the preceding "Amen, Amen." Yes, yes. And then it means, yes, yes, yes. That's listen up. That's "Amen, Amen." It's related to the word for truth. "Emet" is truth in Hebrew, and "Amen" is I. I affirm the truth of it. I, 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 it's often translated, I believe, but it means you can trust this fact. So very, very good. Yeah, you're right. That when Jesus says, amen, amen, he's saying, listen up. Very good. Okay, well, thank you. That, thank that's, you very that's much, a, Father. It's a beautiful passage of scripture. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. My goodness. I'll never forget when I looked at that word in Greek and think, wow, I never noticed that before. So there you go. Hmm. Uh, if you thank live you, long God. enough, you learn stuff. God bless, Steve. I'm on it. You listen. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Let's go to Josh from, from uh, uh, Oceanside, California. Goodness.
No, I don't know what that was about. All right, we're going to go to Susan. That was, goodness, interesting music. Let's go to Susan from San Diego. Susan, what can I do for you? Well, I'm one city away from Oceanside. <laughs> oh, dear. So, well, I can, can we hear the music in the distance? Oh, my. <laughs> okay. Anyways, Father, so I had the, um, I told the guy that answered the phone, it was Luke chapter 2, verses 39 and 40 uh, from a couple uh-huh. weeks ago, a couple of days ago, about yeah. where um, Simon and Anna saw Jesus. And then he says, and then he went off to live in a Galilee, Galilee Nazareth, yeah. you know. Yeah. But they never mention, you know. We don't mention Egypt. about nope. Egypt. Nope. Yeah. So what's up? Nope. Nope. Well, what's up? Uh, are there things sometimes, and are you, are you a married woman? Yeah. Have you, has it ever happened that you mentioned to your husband, yes, I came home early from the market. You didn't mention the fact that you dinged the car. <laughs> one wants to give people dad. the news. <laughs> all right, your dad. Did that with my dad. All right, yes, all right, your dad. That'll do. You know, right. but you didn't mention the part about digging the car. You know, I my whole understanding of scripture changed when a buddy of mine, um, this would have been forty years ago, asked me. He looked, talked about Mark, uh, Jesus uh, walking on the water. He meant to pass by them, and he said to me. Where was he going? And I thought that's a ridiculous question. Where was he going? That's a good question. Where was he going? Why did they say he meant to pass by them? Then I, re- I, I really, I spent ages researching it. The cliche in the New Testament uh, for for passing by the cliche is a cliche in the Bible, meaning to manifest one's divinity. You know, the the wind that passes by the cave that Elijah's in in the Book of Job, were you to pass by me? Moses in the cleft of the rock, God passed by him. To manifest divinity is to pass by. And the Gospel of Mark starts out the Gospel of Mark, uh, the Gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the high point of the Gospel is not the resurrection. It's the centurion saying, truly, this was the Son of God. So I realized the Gospel of Mark was written to talk about the divinity of Jesus. And I came to understand that all four of the Gospels, written by their human authors, were written to make a specific point. The Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. The Gospel of John, Jesus is the Messiah. John the Baptist isn't. The Gospel of Mark, Jesus is divine. So what's the Gospel of Luke about? The Gospel of Luke is a legal defense of, uh, together with the book of Acts, is a legal defense of Jesus asking a guy named Theophilus, and there was a high priest named Theophilus, to withdraw the charges against Jesus. It's fascinating. Mm. The book of Luke slash Acts doesn't end. It says, and he kept his own rented dwelling for two years. <laughs> what well did he get convicted did he get uh, uh was he declared innocent he was he was exonerated in that trial and then went on to go to a number of places came back to italy and was rearrested the first trial of, of paul uh, ended in an acquittal so the gospel of luke isn't going to talk about jesus being in trouble with the law when he was born in other words, oh, yes, he did okay. go back to Galilee just by means of Egypt. But we don't need to talk about that just like you didn't need to talk to your dad about having dinged the car. <laughs> you got it? Okay. Yeah, I got it better. You know, okay, all right. The Gospel of Luke is full of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, people say, well, clearly this is this is not mentioned. No, Luke wasn't going to talk about how Jesus was in trouble with the law when he was a baby because ancient, ancient people believed that you were what you were. 
If you were, if you had a great grandfather who was a slave, you were a slave. Change wasn't possible. Uh, uh, if you had a, a great grandfather who was a king, you were royalty, even though the Romans didn't believe in royalty. You'd never change. And if you were in trouble with the law when you were two, well, it makes sense that you were in trouble with the law when you were 33. So, so oh. Luke wasn't going to go into that. And it's fascinating. Luke is full of references to people in the temple who, if Theophilus, as according to Dr. Van Pritchard, that's his theory, um, if, if Theophilus really was this temple high priest, uh, one of the sons of Annas, that, that, uh, uh, all these references to people like, uh, in the temple, like Anna, the prophetess, or the woman who was the widow, the pious widow, these would have been known to him by reputation. So it's very interesting. We think of the Gospels as books written by human beings for a human purpose, but used by the Holy Spirit and written by the Holy Spirit for a a wider purpose. They're both human and divine. That's the thing about the scriptures. Well, there, you've you've allowed me to pontificate on one of my favorite themes. Thank you. Wow, All right, okay. Susan, yeah, God now bless. I know more about it, so thank you. Yeah, thank well, you uh, take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> okay, God bless. Good to talk okay, to you, Susan. Hi. There's the salt shaker. David from Redwood City, California, also a place I know. What can I do for you, David? Hi, Father. Uh, just before I get to my question, real quick, I thought Amen was translated to so be it. Um, well,. It really is from the word for truth. Uh, um, okay. It, it, uh, I'll have to look it up and see. I, I wouldn't translate it, so be it. Um, but um, what you do when you say okay. amen is you're giving assent. So maybe maybe it's in a broad way, yes. I'll look it up and see. why. Well, I've heard it translated that way, too, and I wonder why they do that. But anyway, what's your question, Dave? Uh, Father, uh, soldiers from opposing uh, forces... Uh, receive absolution before going into battle, and mm-hmm. they're both killed. Uh, are mm-hmm. they excused for their actions? Yeah, because it's all about the intention. Why are, why are they fighting in the war? If they're fighting in the war to defend the innocent, it's a just war, all that sort of thing. Yeah, they're both, they're both you know, they might both be wrong in their assessment of the value of the war, but in their intention, they're doing what they think is right. Um, Does that apply to a to a German soldier who's not a who's not a Nazi? I would say so. I mean, you know, uh, my perspective is a little different. I (laughs) I had a cousin, a distant cousin in law, who was a tank driver at the Battle of Stalingrad. One of the nicest guys in the world. He wasn't a Nazi. Um, You know, they told him this was a noble thing that they had been attacked first, and uh, you know he was fooled by them and. he was a good man. So, yeah, it's our intentionality that is essential for committing a serious sin. Speaking of intentionality, Drew's coming up and his intentions are nothing but the best. <laughs>